I invite you to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Our passage this morning is verses 5 and 6. The title of the message is Deeper in Missional Wisdom. Deeper in Missional Wisdom. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we ask right now that you will glorify your name, strengthen your children, and save the lost. For Christ's sake, amen. 10,080. 10,080. There's something very significant about that number. And to demonstrate that, I want to ask you to do something very different right now. I want to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to start my timer right now. And I've designated a length of time I want you to close your eyes. And after that amount of time, I'm going to have you open your eyes again. Okay, open your eyes. First person under the age of 13 who can tell me how long that was wins an all-expense-paid trip to Talladega County. All right? (laughs) Anybody want to guess, if you're under the age of 13, how long that was? Annabella, do you want to take a guess? What was it? 13? Nope. It was longer than 13 seconds. Braden. 30? No, it wasn't 30 seconds. Caleb? No, it was less than two minutes. Just, it was a little bit longer than 50 seconds, Jess. Back there in the back. 60 seconds, one minute. You were right. You guys are right. It was 60 seconds. It was one minute. You have 10,080 of those every single week. 10,080. God gives every one of us. It doesn't matter whether you're really, really old like Ron Marino or whether you're really, really young 
like Nathan Cobb. He gives Nathan and Ron 10,080 minutes every, every single week. And this is the challenge right now that the Holy Spirit is speaking to Redeemer Church. We need to be wise with every single one of them every week. Now we have to ask the question, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the skill of applying gospel truth to everyday life. Wisdom is the skill of applying gospel truth to everyday life. And the Holy Spirit is calling us to take all 10,080 minutes of every week and apply gospel truth to that. Now, our four pillars are worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. And I'm firmly convinced that this provide, these four pillars provide the framework for the Christian life. And so I know that biblically, God calls us to be wise in our worship. He calls us to be wise in how we celebrate God, obey God, reverence God. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to apply gospel truth to our worship. He wants us to apply gospel truth to our fellowship, how we treat one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not to be foolish. We are not to be ignorant about how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Rather, we apply gospel truth it to our discipleship. We are to, to be wise in our application of the gospel truth. We're to be trained. We are are to learn and to grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ and his word. But here, very specifically, Paul is calling us to be wise in our mission. And our mission is to take the gospel hope to our community, our region, and our world. That's our mission, to take the hope of the gospel to our community, our region, and our world. Now this week I listened to an interview with a very well-known pastor and the person conducting the interview asked the pastor, what is the gospel? And we all have bad days. We all fumble at times. But I was disappointed that the pastor could not just... Tell us what the gospel is. And so right now, I want us to just remember what the gospel is. Because we can't take the hope of the gospel to our community, our region, and world unless what? We know the gospel. Okay? Now we've gone over it in detail twice in the last year. And so you don't have to get it word for word as we've kind of put it up on the board, but would anyone be bold enough and daring enough to give us a summary statement of what the gospel is? Daniel Coleman. Good, good, good. Used a couple big words there, but that's exactly right. That's good. All right. Stated in his own words, he gave us the gospel. That was right on. Affirmed. Anybody else want to give the gospel in your own words? Oh, Abigail. 
Yeah, absolutely. And how can God save you, Abigail? Mm-hmm. That's right. And what happened? What happened for God to be able to save you and rescue you from your sins? That's right, you do. So here we go. Summary statement of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus. And of course, that's just a coat hanger for us to be able to hang a bunch of stuff on, right? So it's news. It's a great message about what God has done, as Abigail told us. And it does include bad news, as Daniel told us. It includes the bad news that we're sinners, that we're lost, that we're headed for hell because of our sin, that we're going to die and we're going to remain in spiritual death unless something happens. And what happens? God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, to be raised from the dead powerfully, to ascend into heaven, and then ultimately to return and rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And whoever puts their faith and their trust in Him and in Him alone will reign with Him in glory forever. That's the essence of the gospel. All right, And and what we're seeking to do, according to Paul's instructions to us, is to take that gospel to our community, to our region, and to our world. And we've got to be wise to do that. We can't go out flippantly or foolishly. We can't do that. We have to be wise. And so, uh, let's see. Uh, Melissa, would you put the statement here? I believe that the essence of Paul's message in verse 5 and 6 is you need to be really wise in your mission to reach outsiders with the hope of the gospel. You need to be really wise in your mission to reach outsiders with the hope of the gospel. And the key thing that you want to zero in on is you need to be really wise. You need to be really wise. There there are really three options that we have, I think, in our relationship with outsiders. There are three options that we have. The first is we can be wasteful with the gospel message. Now, if you're willing to be honest here this morning, raise your hand if you think you've been ever been wasteful with the gospel message. I've been wasteful with the gospel message as well. A person who is wasteful, the dictionary says, is a person who squanders away that which is valuable. Squanders away that which is valuable. I think of one of the disciples of Jesus, Judas. Judas had the embodiment of the gospel before him for three years, and he completely squandered it away. I think of Ananias and Sapphira, who had tasted of the beauty and the sweetness of the gospel, but in order to promote their own agenda and to exalt themselves, they squandered away the gospel. I think of Demas, who's mentioned later on in this book, who because he loved this, what? Present world. Because he had a love for material things, he squandered away his opportunity to represent the gospel to a lost world. Listen, every day you and I have the temptation to waste the gospel. The second thing that we can do is we can be wimpy with the gospel. We can be wimpy with the gospel. Uh, I looked up in the dictionary, wimpy is a real word, and a wimp is a feeble, ineffective, cowardice person. A feeble, ineffective, cowardice person. Now, I'm not declaring 
A couple of these biblical examples, I'm not saying that they're wimps, I'm saying that they were tempted toward wimpiness, but can you remember when Paul and Barnabas were out preaching the gospel and they had Mark along with them? Can you remember when things got a little bit tough, what did Mark do? He went home. He went home. And a couple chapters later in the book of Acts, it's time for for Mark to join the missionary crew again, and what does Paul say? No way. No way. He's a gospel wimp. It's, that's a paraphrase. Um, but, but I'm not taking it with me. And it caused a division between Barnabas and Paul because, because Barnabas said, no, he's still good for ministry. And, and later on, years down the road, Paul also said, yeah, Mark is good for ministry. But he had a temptation to be wimpy with the gospel. And Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, close friends, also had a t- temptation to be wimpy with the gospel, to shy back to be timid, to be afraid, to be feeble and ineffective with the gospel. And that's why Paul tells to Timothy in his letter to him, fan the flame of the gospel in your heart. Fan it up. Know uh, that I laid my hands on you, that the Holy Spirit infused you, indwells you, sealed you. You can go out with confidence, Timothy. You don't have to be a wimp in the gospel because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so we're we're, we're tempted to be both wasteful and wimpy with the gospel, but Paul clearly calls us right now to be wise, to be wise with the gospel message. A wise person is a person who applies gospel truth to everyday life. The apostle Paul is a perfect example. Apollos, the man who was mighty in the scriptures, he is a great example. He did not even know about the death and resurrection of Jesus yet, but he was so mighty in the scriptures that when, uh, who was it that pulled him aside, Priscilla and Aquila? Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and taught him about the person and work of Jesus. He said, oh yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Praise God, we have a Savior. And he goes out and begins to win people to Jesus as he hears about that. It was wise with the gospel. That's why I say wisdom is the skill of applying gospel truth to every aspect of human life. Now, if you look down at your text, and we're not in the actual outline yet, but if you just look down at the text, notice that Paul says you need to make the best use of the what? Time. Make best use of the time. Now, Ben, you still read your New King James, right? What does it say there? Redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. This is one of those kind of preacher moments where I can tell you that the, the original wording here is a compound verb. It's a compound verb, which means to buy out of. To buy back out of, or to buy back from. All right? Um, ek or gazo. All right, to buy back from. It is the term that Paul uses twice in Galatians to refer to being redeemed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. God in Christ bought us back from the curse of the law. It's only used four times in the New Testament, and those are three. Twice in Galatians and once here in Colossians. And so the, 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 the thrust of what Paul is telling the Colossian church is Just as 
Christ bought you out of the slave house of sin and redeemed you out of that slavery and brought you into freedom with Christ, you need to buy back every one of those minutes, every one of those 10,080 minutes that you have every week and redeem them for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of the souls of the people around you. Murray Harris, commentator, paraphrases this statement, making the best use of time. I just want to read him for you. In the open market, where the commodity of time is on sale, Christians are to make a timely purchase for themselves. Brother and sister, I'm just, you have to make a timely purchase for yourself every day. You make a purchase of time. He says, in other words, they are to seize eagerly and use wisely every opportunity afforded them by time to promote the kingdom of God. Don't waste any opportunity that comes your way or squander the chance to walk boldly through an open door into the heart of an unbeliever. Every relationship and every encounter has the potential to be eternally redemptive. I think I can say it in a little bit more quippy common language don't just sit there and wait for an opportunity to fall in your lap but go after it yes buy it take every opportunity to be a gospel blessing to outsiders all right so what i want to do now is i simply want to call you to a life of missional wisdom by giving you three aspects of missional wisdom three aspects of missional wisdom If you want to be obedient to the Lord, if you want to represent Jesus Christ in a faithful way, if you want to fulfill the fourth pillar of our purpose at this church, then you need to embody these three aspects of missional wisdom. The first thing is you need to be wise with your relationships. Be wise with your relationships. He says, walk in wisdom. Somebody tell me the next two words. Walk in wisdom what? Toward outsiders. Toward outsiders. Now that little preposition toward is going to be found in the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard, the New King James, and every other legitimate English translation of the Bible. They all use the preposition toward because it means toward. (laughs) Toward. Okay? That's important. Because Paul doesn't say walk in wisdom when you happen to find yourself around outsiders. Walk in wisdom when God amazingly and miraculously plops down an unbeliever in front of your face at the checkout line at Winn-Dixie. No. You're walking. You're walking in this life. It uses the verb peripateo. It means to walk. You're walking. And you're walking in a specific direction. And in what direction are you walking? Church, tell me. Toward outsiders. Outsiders, Paul uses unequivocally to mean people who are outside the church. Non-Christian people. And so Paul says, you need to be wise with your relationships. Now we have a, a cultural problem. In our contemporary church culture, it seems really popular, this is very important, to gather the maximum amount of people, gather them all together, and give them the minimum amount of truth with the hope that that little bit of truth that they hear will change their lives. 
I've been around it, I've seen it, I've experienced. Gather as many people as you possibly can, entertain them, let them feel good about themselves, provide a felt need, and give a sprinkling of truth, and hope that sprinkling of truth will impact them for eternity. My my point here is that's not wise. That is not wise ministry. Raise your hand if you have ever heard of Willow Creek Community Church. All right, many of you have. For the last 30 years, Willow Creek has been the experts on church growth and evangelism. They're based out of Chicago, Illinois. I did a little research this week on Willow Creek because I remember I heard a few years ago how Willow Creek came out and said, yes, we've been doing it 30 years. Yes, we've planted hundreds of churches. Yes, we've reproduced our church model all over every continent in the world. Yes, we've done all that. But we see it doesn't work. That's what they said. And so, But listen to their goal. The church's goal is to try to help people who are far from Jesus Christ to become disciples of Christ characterized by their love for God and other people. That's an awesome goal. And then they say, we do that by creating a variety of programs and services for people to participate in. Our strategy is to try to get people far from Christ engaged in these activities. And the more people are participating in these sets of activities with higher levels of frequency, it will produce disciples of Jesus Christ. That, that's their model. What they discovered through a multi-year, multi-church study after 30 years of doing ministry, it's pretty disturbing. First, they discovered that increasing levels of participation in these activities does not predict whether a person will become a disciple of Jesus. You following me? We can have seven people come and play Frisbee with us out here every Saturday for seven years. And it does not predict that they'll become a believer. The second thing that they found out is that in every church there is a spiritual continuum in which you can look at your congregation and put them in one of five unique segments. You can put the people in five segments. Now listen to this. Segment one is those who are exploring Christianity. They're non-believers who are attending services or activities provided by the church. That's segment one. Segment two is those who love Jesus and have a relationship with him and are growing in that relationship because they're really new Christians. Segment three are those who are close to Christ. Their relationship with Christ is important to them on a daily basis, and they might Pray or read the Bible or have thoughts about God on a daily basis. Segment four are those who are centered on their relationship with Jesus Christ. Their relationship with Christ is the most important relationship in their life. That's segment four. And segment five is these are believers who are stalled in their relationship with Jesus. They are not investing time on a regular basis in their relationship with Jesus. Although they are actually investing time in church events on a regular basis, they're not investing time in their personal relationship with Christ. The groundbreaking discovery from the non-predictability 
of the activity. And then these five segments of the continuum is this. The study showed that it is the ones in the first two segments who are the most satisfied with the local church. Pre-Christians give Willow Creek top marks and new believers are not far behind. But the last three segments have increasing dissatisfaction. They are disappointed with the role that the local church is playing in their lives. The third segment, Bill Hybel says, are growing Christians but are much less pleased and the fully devoted followers of Christ are very unhappy with Willow Creek Community Church. This group says they are not being fed, they want more of the meat of the Word of God, serious-minded Scripture taught to them, and they want to be challenged more. And increasingly, those in segment four are thinking about leaving the local church, which is what this leader of Willow Creek says, incredibly sad. The people who love God the most are the most disappointed by their local church. This is really eye-opening for me this week. One of the reasons why is because we have, I don't know, generally about 100. We've been, we've been averaging a little below 100 in the last couple months, but we've had about 100. But you know that we've had about 200 visitors in our church the last year. We've had about 200 visitors. And yet, and yet, hardly any of them have been incorporated into our body. And we've done a lot of events. We've done Friendship Fest. We've done Team Day. We've done a variety Christmas outreach. And I'm not saying that we as a leadership team think we shouldn't do those. But this is the thing. Is activities and programs and events are no indicator or predictor that you're going to produce disciples of Jesus Christ. You know what is a predictor of that? an investment of your time and your relationships with people over day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year ministry and love for them. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I want you to look at the example of Jesus in this matter. And so, Jesus, how, how are you wise in your relationships? I mean, surely you, you walked in wisdom toward outsiders. We know that. How, how did you do it? Mark tells us. Verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Keep your eyes on the text. Jesus intentionally spent time with outsiders so he could demonstrate his love for them, teach them the gospel, and win them to himself. Look down at verse 13. Jesus was available to sinners. Now listen, I know we're all busy. I'm busy and you're busy. We are active with our responsibilities. Folks, Jesus Christ is God. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to usher in the kingdom of the sovereign God. He came to live a perfect life, obey every jot and tittle of the law, die sacrificially, rise from the dead powerfully, be ascended into heaven and to mediate and advocate for all his believers for eternity. He was a really busy guy. But he made himself available to lost people. He made himself available to lost people. Look at verse 14. Not only was he available, he was engaged. He was engaged with them. He says to Levi, follow me. He engaged Levi, he engaged a sinner with the powerful nature of himself. And what did Levi do? He followed him. Look at verse 15. He participated in social life with outsiders. He sat down and ate and drank and socialized with people who did not love God and did not attach themselves in any way, shape, form, or fashion with obedience to God. He ate with them. He drank with them. He laughed with them. He talked with them. He participated in social life with outsiders. Look look at verse 16. He disregarded religious people's opinions about him. I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth. That's one thing I never want to be accused of doing. But a loose paraphrase of what Jesus was doing here was basically saying, I don't care what they think. I love sinners, and I'm come to save sinners. That leads us to number 17, uh, verse 17. Look, he purposed to love, serve, and save sinners. He purposed to love, serve, and and save sinners. So if we're thinking about principles for how we need to be wise in our relationships and we look at the life of Jesus, one thing we need to say is, first of all, we need to make ourselves available. We need to make ourselves available to outsiders. If we're not available to outsiders, then we cannot obey the scripture that says make every use of the time and be wise toward outsiders. We need to be engaged. We need to literally engage outsiders with the gospel. We need to participate with people. We need to hang out with people who need the gospel. We need to disregard what religious people think. What if this... What what if that pastor over there sees me having lunch with this non-Christian? Well, hopefully that pastor will say, go get them and and, and pray for me as I'm doing that. What, what, What do we care what other people think when we're trying to reach unbelievers for the gospel? 
And what do we need to do? We need to, have, we need to have very intentional purpose. We need to view ourselves the way that Jesus viewed himself, a physician of the soul. There are many sick people in our community who need the medicine of the gospel to cure them. If you're taking notes, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write down three applications. Three applications underneath, be wise with your relationship. And I, would, I want to ask you to, to do these if you are willing. First, identify the natural relationships you have with outsiders. Identify the natural relationships you have with outsiders. Family. Friend. Coworker. Neighbor. Family. Friend. Coworker. Neighbor. Is there another heading I might could use? Okay. Sure, tenant. Yeah, specify it to your own particular circumstance. If you even wanted to write like a, almost like across the top, family, friend, coworker, neighbor, and over here miscellaneous, and write down every person who is an outsider, a non-Christian who fits into that category, who you already know, who you already have a relationship with. Identify the natural relationships you have with outsiders. All right? The second thing, the second application is press into those relationships with those five principles that Jesus demonstrates. Press in, press into those relationships with those five principles that Jesus demonstrates. Availability, engagement, participation, disregard, and purpose. I'll send you the notes if you're not getting all that. Press into those relationships with the five principles from Mark 2. And then third, third, pray. Pray verses 3 and 4 about these opportunities. Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Pray that I will have an open door for the word, that I will declare the mystery of Christ, and that I will make it clear as I ought to speak. So begin to pray in these natural relationships for an open door for the word, for you to declare the mystery of the gospel with clarity, and that you might do it with boldness to win people to Jesus. Remember last, last week we said lost people are saved when saved people pray for lost people. Remember that? So let's begin to do that. This is how we are wise in our relationships with outsiders. Okay. Let's look at number two. Be wise with your time. We're not going to spend much time here. I'm going to shot this ammunition in the introduction. Be wise with your time. And so we have 10,080 minutes every week. Nobody has more, nobody has less. The question is, how are we going to use those 10,080 minutes? to walk in wisdom toward out, outsiders. So this is, I want to be helpful here. I want to be practically helpful. The first thing that you have to do is prioritize your time according to your God-given responsibilities. Prioritize your time according to your God-given responsibilities. I'm going I'm to give an example. Mark, Mark Holden hears, okay, I've got a, 
I've got to redeem the time. I've got to buy it back, and I've got to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That way I've got to give the gospel, the hope of the gospel, to as many people as I possibly can. So Mark Holden decides, I'm quitting my job. I'm getting up at 6 in the morning, and from 6 to 7.30, I'm going to hang out with all the guys at Jack's because I know those guys, a lot of them are lost down there. I'm going to develop relationships with them from 6 to 7.30. Then I'm going to get in my car and drive to Oxford Lake, and I'm going to walk five miles, and I'm going to speak and meet every person that I possibly can who's walking around that lake. And then I'm going to go door to door from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., and I'm just going to tan out as many gospel tracts as I possibly can for that six-hour period of time. I'm going to go get some water. I'm not going to eat. I'm just going to fast. And then that night, I'm going to find some type of evangelistic meeting or tent meeting so that I can encourage people to get saved. And I'm going to do that every day. Mark, if you do that every day, what's going to happen to your life? It is. (laughs) It is going to be destroyed because God has given you some priorities in your life, hasn't he? First of all, you... That's why I use you as an example. All right, so so you you are a worshiper of God. You've got to spend time cultivating your own personal heart for God, reading the scriptures, uh, praying. All right, you're a husband. You have to minister to your wife and love her as Christ loves the church. You've got children that you've got to provide for and care for and train in the gospel. You're a worker. You've got to show up to work in order to, to do your job excellently before the Lord to make enough money to provide for your family. You're a friend. You're a, you're a dad. You're a granddad. You've got to, you have to fulfill all of those responsibilities, right? And so, folks, hear from your pastor. You've got to prioritize your God-given responsibilities, So the first thing you've got to do is know what your God-given responsibilities are. I've told you all many times, I am a worshiper, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a worker, I'm a friend, I'm an evangelist. That's my list of priorities, and I've got to know that. But this is the kicker. This is the key for you to be able to be wise in your time toward outsiders. This 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 is the deal. How can I fulfill my primary roles and still be missionally wise at the same time? How can I fulfill my primary roles and still be missionally wise at the very same time? So like for me, this week, I said, okay, as a worshiper, in my times of worship, I need to pray fervently for the lost people in my life. In my marriage, Jamie and I need to evangelize lost people together when we're investing in our relationships to one another. In other words, when we get to go out to eat, let's go to Frontera, let's meet the same people, let's ask them about their lives, and let's minister to them while we're ministering to each other as husband and wife. As we're parenting, let's go to the park, let's go to the Little League games, and let's meet other parents and other parents who have children that we may invest in them as we're investing in our own children. I'm a worker. Let me pursue my relationships with lost co-workers and, and clients, etc. Now, that was more for y'all than it was for me. I'm in the ministry. Hopefully, I don't have lost co-workers. But you understand the very point. All right? You understand the point. Friend. Now, this is key, and especially for you ladies. I know we have a lot of ladies with the Y'all do the... Uh, uh, moms and kids uh, swim day on Mondays, and you do a lot of thing, different things together. Wisely include outsiders into your friendship. Wisely include outsiders into your friendships and do, so, do it strategically. And then, and then as an evangelist, I have to set aside time to develop missionary relationships. 
I have to set aside time to develop missionary relationships. Hospitality, and I'm in my home. Coaching Little League. Joining some type of sports league. Going to the same restaurants, etc. I have to set aside time to cultivate and develop missional relationships. That's how I can fulfill my primary roles and still be missionally wise with my time. Is that helpful? Is that helpful? All right, so I encourage you, by way of application, write down the primary roles that God has given to you. And there's got to be at least four for everybody. Four primary roles that are from the Scriptures. There's got to be at least four. And then ask God to help you to cultivate wisdom to know how to be missional within those primary roles. And then set aside time to be missional just out and out unadulterated, knocking on doors, talking to men at Jack's and all the things that we talked about. Okay, so be wise with your time. And then finally, be wise with your speech. Be wise with your speech. If you just look back down at verse 6, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, let's just tackle it kind of chronologically here. He says, let your speech be gracious. There's kind of two, two ends of the spectrum as far as interpreting what Paul means by gracious. It's, it's the, the name of the Cobb's daughter, Charis. That's, that, that's, uh, you pronounce it Charis. That's the word that he uses here for gracious, okay? And there are many scholars who believe that Paul is just simply saying be kind, be, be real charming and witty in your speech so that you're interesting, so that outsiders will uh, have a desire to hear what you have to say. And then the other side of it is there's no way that Paul would use the word charis, grace, and not have the grace of God as the fuel behind what he's writing. So some are saying, well, be charming. The other people are saying, be full of gospel fuel when you open your mouth toward outsiders, okay? I would like to think that it's a combination of the two. Be as gracious and kind and winsome, and dare I even say witty, in your conversation with other people, but underneath it, it is founded upon the amazing grace of a loving God who has saved us from our sins and saved us to himself. So that, yes, our speech is interesting. Yes, our, our speech is, is uh, winsome. People enjoy having conversation with us because we're good conversationalists. But the reason we're good conversationalists is because we are fueled with the love of God for sinners. So he says, be gracious in your speech. Be pleasant and pointed with your speech. And, and let's just make this observation, folks. Likely... Likely, everybody in this church who is a Christian and who desires to make a difference in people's lives, you're tempted toward being really, really pleasant and not pointed at all about the gospel. Or really, really pointed and not very pleasant with the gospel. And I believe what Paul would say is, be both pleasant and pointed. Be both gracious and purposeful. Don't subtract the gospel from your graciousness and think any way that you're representing Jesus. But don't speak so much 
um, truth about the gospel in an unloving tone, in an unwinsome way that nobody cares what you have to say. So be both gracious in your tone, in your demeanor, and also in your words. And then he uses that phrase seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. So Jamie and the boys have been gardening it up for the last couple months. And Jamie and Mary went out for lunch yesterday, and it was left to me to provide lunch. And there is an array of vegetables on the counter yesterday. There is zucchini and squash and uh, what? So I don't even know what a couple of those. To, yeah, tomato. Well, certainly tomatoes. Because when I looked down at the tomatoes, they were really red. And they looked really good. And I said, you know what? We're going to have some tomatoes. And so I took a cutting board and I washed the tomato. Jamie, I washed the tomato. And I cut out the little hole. And I don't know if you're like me but I'm very anxious to see once I make that first cut what it looks like. I don't know if anybody liked that. I've never had a conversation about this with anyone, but I'm just really curious what that first, because it's almost like that, that middle slice really is going to determine the quality of this tomato, right? So I, I cut four slices and put them on the cutting board, and they were absolutely beautiful, every one of them. And I thought that would be really good on its own, but could I make it better? And so I took sea salt, and I ground a little sea salt on top of the tomato. Then I took some pepper, and I ground a little pepper. And then I looked into the refrigerator, and I found some crumbled up blue cheese. And I sprinkled blue cheese on every one of the tomatoes. Now, for some of you, that grosses you out. But for others of you, you will understand what I say. It was absolute gardening glory. Because I took one slice and just put the whole thing in my mouth. And all of these tastes just exploded in my mouth. And I had another slice and another slice. And then I got another tomato and peeled it and did the same thing. And then I got another tomato and did that and did the same thing. Because I loved what I was tasting. Now, I believe in the scriptures, um, the Holy Spirit uses salt to refer to being a preservative power. Um, it uses it to be like almost a sterilizing power, but it also uses it to be tasty, to be seasoning, to taste better. And, and what I believe is this, is when Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt, I believe he's saying, let your speech be tasty. Let it be sweet. Let it be enjoyable. Let it be something that the outsiders whom you have relationships with want to hear more from you. They want to know what your opinion is about this matter. They care to know what your opinion is about same-sex marriage. They want to know what your opinion is about uh, what happens in Charleston because they know they're going to hear the very opinion or the very um, counsel of God himself in a winsome, loving, non-condemnatory way. That's gracious speech. That is speech seasoned with salt. Then he says, so that you can answer everyone. You answer objections, you answer questions, you answer confusion, you answer everyone according to their specific need. And so be wise with your speech. Offer gracious and winsome answers that overcome obstacles to the gospel. If you would, 
to kind of close your things up and bow your head. And I just want us to meditate right now. I want us to meditate on Paul's instruction, the Holy Spirit's call on us to be missionally wise. Now, right now, if you can, I want you to focus on my questions right here. If you have your head bowed and you have a meditative spirit, I want to ask you these questions. What family members, friends, neighbors, and co-workers do you have that you know they're outsiders? You know they're outsiders. You know by their speech. You know by their priorities. You know by their testimony. You know by the pattern of their life that they are outside of Christ and outside of Christ's church. And I want to ask you this question. Are you being wise toward them? Are you being wise in your relationship with them? Are you being wise in your time with them? Are you being wise with your speech toward them? I want to call you this morning to make a legitimate plan for going deeper in missional wisdom. Would you heed that call and obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus may return tomorrow. He may return 10,080 minutes from now. What are you going to do with those minutes?